Heterodorks. Heterodox dorks. Well, that went down badly, Nina. I sang the last intro to episode 79, and my inbox has been full of nothing but complaints. Uh, people told me that they've had their pets flee their houses, that children cried, and it's it's caused all sorts of catastrophe. So we're just using the normal jingle to heterodorks <laughs> this time. I'm Corinna Cohn, your co-host. I'm Nina Paley, your other co-host, and today we have a special guest, hetero dork. She, I assume that's the correct pronoun, she is a classical liberal, celebrated author, and smart person, Helen Dale. How do you do, ladies? (laughs) That's quite an introduction. (laughs) I'm not a lady. And I guess I'm, I'm not either. Yeah. But that's cool. You can call us ladies if you want. Uh, Right. So uh, I'm going to just jump right in here, Helen. Uh, And people can try to figure out who you are by listening for a while. Or you can, you know, tell them who you are. But I'm you're going to have to break in in order to do that. Uh, I want to talk about hate speech. Mm. Because I believe that a couple years ago there was that letter of support for jk rowling and i believe that uh you were reluctant to sign it because it had hate speech as a concept in it or as a phrase it used the phrase hate speech and um you were justifiably very critical of that concept well yes i don't i just think at a, at a top level, this is one area where I agree with US Supreme Court jurisprudence going back over many decades, which is I think hate speech is just speech. In this, I'm relatively unusual in someone who comes from the UK and Commonwealth or the European Union in the context of the jurisprudential approach to the concept of hate speech. Most of those countries accept it to a greater or lesser degree, and so does, to a very weak degree, so does my home country of Australia, a Commonwealth country. The United States is currently the only country, liberal developed democracy in the world, uh, that does not have statutory forms of hate speech. And were there any attempt at either the state or the federal level to introduce it, uh, it would be comprehensively and immediately struck down by your superior appellate courts. I I doubt it would even get to the SCOTUS. And if it did, SCOTUS would just knock it on the head because you have distinctive jurisprudential traditions in your country. I agree with those jurisprudential traditions, which used to be held on both sides of politically of the American legal profession, whether you were the American Bar Association or the Federalist Society, they had the same views. That is now starting to break down. The support for freedom of speech that is all-encompassing and includes hate speech and has only very narrow exceptions for a weak form of defamation, what is called libel and slander in England and Wales, defamation in the Commonwealth and in Scotland and in the European Union. There are narrow exceptions to those speech rules in the United States. 
and I'm not an American lawyer. Whilst I am a lawyer, I'm not an American lawyer. I may use the wrong terminology. I may use British terminology here, but I understand them to be a narrow and weak exception for what you call libel and slander, I think, and a narrow and weak exception for incitement. Now, that used to be the case throughout the the UK and Commonwealth and the European Union as well. It started to change after the Second World War. And if you want a bit of a history of where hate speech came from, I can give that to you, a bit of legal history. Um, Because it's unfortunately, uh, and this is, once again, I need to bracket off the United States because your legal rules were already set in place and they were entrenched in your constitution. The United States has what is has what is known thanks to a judgment historically in your history called Marbury against Madison. Your country has what is known as entrenched judicial review. That's what lawyers call it, which means decisions about the scope and meaning of your constitution are in the hands of your superior appellate courts, especially SCOTUS. Australia also has an entrenched constitution, like the United States, but it doesn't have any entrenched rights. And significantly, it is the other country in the world with very significant free speech protections. Not quite as good as the United States in some areas, but better in others. And I'll come on to that in a moment. So what happened after the Second World War was it wasn't just the Western allies, Britain, the US, Australia, Canada, the Commonwealth, India, uh, who defeated the Axis countries, Germany, Japan, Japan and Italy, although you've got to remember that the Italians changed sides, which is always their thing. It was an alliance with another totalitarian state that was the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had a government that was every bit as appalling, as destructive and as murderous as that of Nazi Germany. And indeed, for a period during the war, they were actually on the same side. What this meant is at the foundation of all the international organisations post-war, particularly the United Nations, but to a lesser extent, many others, but mainly the UN, all the instruments that were drawn up in the name of never again, we can't have governments going rogue like this and invading half the planet and butchering large percentages of their own population and lots of other countries as well. One of the countries that was involved in forming those international agreements, particularly the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, and the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which was formally um, in not entrenched, but formally had enough signatories to be considered a reasonable part of global international law in 1966. They were both United Nations instruments. Later on, this pernicious influence also emerged in the context of the European Convention on Human Rights, despite Britain having a significant drafting role in that. And that's reached such a pretty pass that if the Conservative government remains in power for another term, it's quite likely that Britain will withdraw. Now, what happened in 1948 and 1966 was the Soviet Union brought its ideas about fascism, which was a very wide definition of fascism that didn't just include what had existed in Nazi Germany or in in fascist Italy, Mussolini's Italy. People in the Soviet Union, the communists, thought that anything 
that was basically right of centre was a form of fascism. And this developed very early, developed just after the Second World War. And so the delegates to the very first meetings of the United Nations where the UDHR was being drafted from very early on tried to introduce an idea, the idea of whilst you could support free speech, you had to make incitement to hate is usually the phrase that is used. And there are variations on that in these different instruments. Had to also be made illegal or at least condemned by the state. Now, in 1948, the Soviets largely lost that argument because the countries that became the non-aligned world or the developing world, most of them were still parts of the British Empire, which means they voted with Britain or the Commonwealth. They, they, they voted with Britain. So the Soviets lost that argument in 1948. However, with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, they came back and had another bite at the cherry. And during the long period of drafting, which went from 1954 to 1956, there are documents, the draft, you can go through the drafting history of these international conventions. And there's a special expression for that in French known as the travaux préparatoire. So you go through the travaux and you can see the way these documents changed until the Soviets won. And of course, they had lots more of they had other countries to support them now, because one of the things that happened during the Cold War was the Soviets made a big play for developing countries. And they are also the origins of all of this decolonization and anti-colonization movement. Those ideas are not from um, the United Kingdom or from the United States. Um, to the, to the, and I have to say to black Americans who try to claim them, they're talking complete nonsense. These ideas are, are Soviet in origin. And as we now know with the war in Ukraine, the principal reason that the Soviet Union, which was dominated by all Russians, great Russians, not the country, but Bol as in big, okay, the great Russian ethnicity is one of the worst behaved colonial powers in human history has been actually Russia, not just the Soviet Union, Russia, dreadful colonial power. So this was a way to divert attention from themselves and lay blame at the hands of other European countries who had also had colonial empires, but had not behaved anything like as badly as Russians had. And of course, the Russians were bad in, already in the Tsarist era. They became worse under communism because it's such a murderous ideology. But that's by the by. So with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, you got a free speech clause, which all the Western countries signed, signed up to, but you also got a incitement to hate and hate speech clause. So without going into the detail of the document, which you could look up and they're on the internet, on the UN website, you can read them and on Wikipedia and places. So what this meant is that Western countries overwhelmingly, there's a procedure you can use in international law when you don't accept all parts of a treaty and it's known as derogation. So Western countries overwhelmingly derogated from the hate speech article. Unfortunately, though, the idea was now in the wild, the idea of the idea you could incite people to hate. And it is foreign to the traditions, not only of the United States, but also to the UK and Commonwealth and also to the intellectual traditions of many other countries. I mean, India produced great philosophers long before the British got there and colonised it. And it's also foreign to the philosophical traditions of, of Hinduism as well. So the, the, these are very much commie nonsense. You can, you know, all those nasty old right wingers who said this was commie nonsense, they were actually right. 
and it's sort of intellectually underpowered as well because it assumes the argument in a nutshell, and it's one that we've all seen on the internet, is that if you let people say mean words and bad words that hurt or offend other people, that there's an, a conveyor belt, an escalator, that where you start with the mean words and the hateful words, and it escalates into inevitably to violence. That's the pyramid of hate from the yes, Anti-Defamation all- League. Yes, that's the all-port scale. And yes, I am afraid the Anti-Defamation League, Jewish organisations bought into this as well. I mean, I, I had it explained to me very nicely by M- Matthew Lesh, who, who is Jewish himself, but also works for the Adam Smith Institute in the UK. And he's made the point to me, he's been in multiple rows with Jewish people over this, because many of them also believe this, that because you allowed people to say bad words, that was what ultimately led to the Holocaust and, you know, the elevator. Sometimes it's called the Allport scale, which is another version right. of it. Uh, sometimes it's called the, the, the pyramid of hate. You know, these are the various expressions. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt just for, I'm, I want to interrupt just so we can converse. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know, I know. It's like, I, I've got a bunch mm. of questions. Yes. Even I'm just I doing the history of hate have speech. to concede that there are some exceptions to like unlimited free speech, right? Like if if the speech of like I am going to go to your house and kill you, uh, it's generally yeah, that's generally not protected under under free speech. It's and generally the regarded as yelling fire in a and crowded to be theater. Fair, is but like where do you draw the line? Like what are no. what do you consider? these legitimate exceptions to speech. I call here, there's a scholar at the University of Oxford called Teresa Bean, and she's done a lot of work on this. And she describes herself not as a free speech absolutist because she's not, but as a free speech fundamentalist, which is Mm. where there were traditional speech carve-outs in the United States constitutionally and in Britain at common law, uh, excuse me, in in France among drawing on the Roman jurists, uh, then uh, you you must preserve those speech rules. But ones that are sort of honoured and hallowed by tradition and where we do have some awareness of how they work, like the traditional rules about libel and slander, like the traditional rules about incitement, she thinks they should be maintained, and I do as well. Incitement is a real thing that happens, and even John Stuart Mill, who's generally considered the granddaddy of free speech arguments, talks about the mob outside, the excited mob bearing pitchforks and torches outside the corn dealer's house. And you might think, why are they picketing a corn dealer? This, of course, when these people were writing, when Mill was expressing his ideas, was at the height of the controversy in Britain over the Corn Laws. And what that meant in the context of British history was that there were very, very large tariffs uh, on imported corn, particularly from France. And this was designed to protect British farmers so they wouldn't go out of business. But of course, the effect of it, because the French grain, not corn, not from the United States, grain, corn is just a generic word for for, for carbohydrates, uh, uh, would... uh, they didn't want to go out of business. And they, they at that point, had the Conservative Party, the, who were called the Tory Party, they had them in the, the death grip, the agri- agricultural interests. It's the last time that farmers in Britain had real power. 
And so what it meant was that because tariffs drive prices up for local consumers, this is sort of a basic economic principle, it had the effect of meaning that get feeding yourself and feeding a, a normal family was very expensive in Britain. And so and the animus from working class people and from agricultural workers, because they couldn't get enough to eat often, or barely keeping body and soul together, was off and this period this went on for over two hundred years, this conflict, um, was directed at people who dealt in grain. So that's why the image of the of the mob brandishing pitchforks and torches is outside the corn dealer's house and mill recognize recognized that this was incitement that this was a great way for the house to be burnt down with the man and his family in it inside of it and the way to fix the problem of the corn laws was to repeal them and he wait, was wait, wait, on the what, side of repealing what the corn what was laws. incitement what what speech was incitement um, with this mob you got a, per, a person out in front of a mob of people out in front of the corn dealer's house going, there's the corn dealer. He's the one who's overcharging you. He's the reason ah, why you can't feed your food okay. on the table. He lives right there. And okay. So traditionally. Right. Yeah. Traditionally, so, there, so, you need an ang- so it's, you need an angry mob. If there's an angry mob and a potential victim, then this yeah. person and orating at the, at the mob, uh, that yes. that's not. Wow, so that means that uh, a lot of the stuff that people say on Twitter is potentially incitement, right? Because there's mobs all over Twitter. I mean, I've been lied about and I've had mobs driven at me, right? Yeah, but the difference is, I mean, incitement talks about physical harms. Ah. At the outer limit, it might accept psychological trauma. But you would then need to evidence that in court. Okay. So because incitement, to sum it up very briefly, requires proximity in time and proximity in place. So with your mob outside the excited, the excited mob outside the corn dealer's house, you need them outside the corn dealer's house. That's proximity in place. And you need proximity in time. The agitator can't have said it last week or last year. Yeah. It needs to be the two events, the speech, the mob, and the burning down of the corn dealer's house all need to happen close together. Well, that's like, that's like what's happening at these Posey Parker American tour talks. So you know that yes. Kelly J, I don't know if you're following these uh, where she's on tour in the U.S. and visiting various cities and women are speaking and there's a mob right there mm. uh, and they're actually assaulting or trying to assault the women speaking. Um, That's fairly obvious incitement. And to be fair, there were a couple of incidences where the police had a bit of a wobble a couple of years ago, but now what is happening is the police are separating everybody so they separate the protesters so they can't get they're allowed to carry on and yell and have their own banners and placards and then you have kelly jean speakers with their sound system and they're all just yelling at each other and uh, i mean in some respects you can probably get away with that more easily in the united kingdom than you can in the united states because the uk is is disarmed there are mm. very, very few guns in this country. Even criminals have trouble getting them. That's why London doesn't have gun crime. It has knife crime <laughs> because that's all they've got. You know, so the UK is really disarmed. Um, and 
people who do have firearms, I mean, I have previously had a firearms license. You can't get a pistol license and it's very hard to get pistols in the United Kingdom now. Um, they have long arms, you know, so you you have a rifle or a shotgun and you use it to shoot grouse you know it's it's or just you know if you're a farmer and of course you can't turn up to a protest with an enormous great long shotty it's not going to happen because everybody's going to know you've got one well there haven't uh, been there haven't been shootings at these american things but there have been you know pushings and shovings and grabbings and it's still assault uh, assault. i don't know what you call it in the united states but in common law that's still it's called literally common assault if you start oh, getting no, pushy sure, no, and shoving, yeah. obviously the assault is is assault. I'm just wondering about the the speech aspects, right? Like, so you have this group of protesters who are somehow like they're they're accusing the women speaking of genocide, right? Like, like these women, their words are killing us. Uh, their words are violent. We have to mm-hmm. defend ourselves. Like again, the mob outside of the corn dealer's house, right? Like this yes. corn, this corn dealer is killing us in public and- in the street like that. That is when you're getting, you're starting to. I would obviously need to look do an evidence review of the case if I were running a matter like that. You know, I'm retired now, but if I, if it while I was still in practice, I would have to look at the the details and and see whether it, if I was working for the Crown Prosecution Service or the the director of public prosecutions in Australia, I would have to look and see whether it satisfied that the heads of the offence of incitement and, and and see. But where it's outside and physically present like that, that is when you're much more likely to see the traditional old style and these, I mean, Roman law had them as well. I mean, there's the, the idea of incitement and proximity in time and place is ancient. So that's much more likely. Twitter is not. And it's very unpleasant to be dogpiled or to have lots of people have a go at you and so on and so forth. But one of the reasons, and I'm quoting here Louise Perry, one of the reasons why so many of the sort of nasty trans activists and and many of their, their, they call themselves, they're a kind of feminism. I mean, I'm not any sort of feminist. So, uh, I mean, I find all of the varieties of it completely confusing and mostly quite mad. Um, That's another question I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about feminism and why you're not a feminist. Well, because I think it's mad. Mad and pseudoscientific. Go on, be specific. An entire wing of feminism has lent into this idea that people can change sex they can't they can't change what? sex this is bad i mean that's that this variety you, this intersectional you're feminism you're doing violence on corinna you're just you just eradicated corinna's existence i'm kidding corinna's a man <laughs> i mean you can't change sex so so there's that and i mean but also all of the um earlier claims of feminism like it was i mean people like Catherine mckinnon who bought into this idea into the pyramid of hate idea that you can start with something relatively small things words so on and so forth and have them scale up and have them lead to violence which was what finished up leading into people doing research on violent video games and pornography you know this is what actually led academics to go well hang on is there anything in this they found out that there wasn't so, I mean, you could make a separate argument that pornography is bad for the people who do it, and Louise Perry does that in her book, 
the case against the sexual revolution, but you can't make a claim that it leads to sex offences. That's just not true. You know, things like it's pseudoscience, and once your once your arguments have been knocked over, um, you can't replicate them, or you they're not true. You can't prove them. Then you have to give them up. And this this should not be taught in universities. It's nonsense. It's like teaching creationism in a biology school. It's nonsense. Is there um, anything about feminism that you think is legitimate? The original historical versions where it was allied with liberalism, where it was a type of liberal argument, which you get in the Enlightenment period in the 18th and 19th centuries, and which you occasionally see in classical antiquity as well. Uh, there was a Roman advocate, which was what they called barristers, who, who made an argument. She's a very experienced lawyer. And the uh, during one period, during the Second Triumvirate, the Roman Republic was uh, running out of money in the Treasury. And they had developed the idea of no taxation without representation. And basically the triumvirs said, well, we're going to start taxing wealthy women because the Romans didn't have a problem with women having property or anything like that. They didn't have coverture or those kind of laws. So there were a lot of wealthy Roman businesswomen and lawyers and professionals. They, they didn't have a problem with that in their society, but they couldn't be senators and they couldn't run for the Senate because they were women. You know, it was a, it was like 19th century Britain, probably in the the equivalent of after the second reform bill had gone through this the status of women but they didn't they'd never had coverture or this problem with needing a man's permission to open a bank account or that kind of thing in that sense the status of roman women was higher and anyway the triumvirs wanted to bloody tax women and hortensia great name real posh girl's name gets up and and delivers a speech in the forum to the triumvirs and their supporters and says well i'm afraid if you want to do this then you're going to have to get us the vote and you're going to have to let us sit in the senate you know, and the, the triumvirs immediately saw this, the justice of this, and they backed right off. And these were guys who were pretty harsh. It was people like Augustus, who was not above killing Lepidus, you know, not above killing people who disagreed with him. You know, look up the prescriptions if you're into a his, history of the Roman Republic, for example. But he immediately recognised that if he wanted to tax these women, he was going to have to let them sit in the Senate. And you were going to have senatrices as well as senatores. And it was going to get really, really awkward. And then you've got the, the same arguments I repeated in the 18th and the 19th century. You've got Wollstonecraft and you've got Harriet Taylor Mill. Um, these are people, uh, those three women are just good examples, one from antiquity and two figures who emerged in the last sort of 400 years, all make perfect sense to me. These are perfectly reasonable arguments. There is no reason to have rules that say women can't manage their, and own their own property. There are no reasons. There are no good arguments against uh women voting, those kind of things, they will make perfect sense to me. But making empirical claims that aren't true, like that men and women are substantially the same, both above the neck and below the neck, this is untrue. People should not have made this. Now, obviously, there are different schools of fe feminism. You've got the radical feminists who accept men and women are different below the neck. So they're the ones trying to defend women's sports and keep keep pr sexual predators out of women's prisons. But none of them accept that men and women are different above the neck, despite the fact that there's an enormous body of evidence showing that there are two overlapping bell curves. Men are one and women are the other. But there are big chunks on both ends of those where there is no crossover at all. 
psychological differences. And they are actually more pronounced in liberal democracies where people are given more choice. If you go to a developing country and you've got a daughter who's very clever at maths and science and can make the family money, then she will become an engineer. She will not be given a choice. You can go to a developed country that's very wealthy and find the same phenomenon in places like Japan and South Korea, because they have from Confucianism the concept of filial piety, where children not necessarily expected to marry who their parents tell them. Those societies didn't do that kind of filial piety. That's more India. But they are expected to, the expression used in Confucius is follow the family trade or profession, which can mean either my dad was a cobbler, so I have to be a cobbler. But it can also be I'm good at maths and science, so therefore I have to be an engineer and I can't go off and do feminist art therapy because mum and dad will pull, pull my allowance, which is what happens in Japan and South Korea. Western countries where kids are given choice, you actually get greater dimorphism between the sexes because people are allowed, we have self-expression rights, we don't have a tradition of filial piety. So if mum and dad tell their, their daughter who's good at maths and science to do engineering, she can tell them to take a long walk off short pier. That's why I'm an artist. I should have been a hard science mathematician. Mathematician. Engineer. And had you grown up, had you grown up in Japan or China? or South Korea, or Vietnam, all countries that have no problem with women in high places, particularly not uh, Vietnam or South Korea, that's exactly what would have happened, because good children do what mum and dad tell them to do, because those countries are heavily influenced by Confucianism. Um, so, yes, that's what would have, and that's just one of the differences. If you'd grown up in an Islamic country, a really bad one of the really repressive ones, you'd have had no chances. But one of the less repressive ones, perhaps one that was formerly a French colony, like in North Africa, you would also have been finished up an engineer, not necessarily because mum and dad told you to, but because there are no, there were no artistic opportunities for women in those cultural traditions. But there are opportunities for engineers of both sexes in those countries. So that's what causes that. Um, whereas in Western countries, we're richer, we're rich enough to make to be complete dills, to be to make stupid decisions. So, and then the other thing with feminism, and this is radical feminism that does this, it's got this theory of patriarchy. And every single time I read about it, the thing that came to me was, this is like the protocols of the elders of Zion. Mm. It's people sitting in smoke-filled rooms, conspiring. I'll do it properly. She's vaping. She's vaping. Listener, just a moment for our listeners. <laughs> Helen Dale is that, vaping. That, vaping. I can. I can no longer stick a cigar in my mouth because I have given up um, combustible cigarettes and things that you set on fire to smoke. Um, so that crackling noise was my e-cig. And so you got these people in smoke-filled rooms. In one case, men, and in another case, Jews, conspiring to take the world over. And it's an inference drawn. The reason these conspiracies originally emerged, it's an inference drawn from the presence of large numbers of men and Jews in high places or with money. That's where it comes from. But it is a conspiracy theory. And wait, wait pa you're saying patriarchy is a conspiracy the theory? The idea of patriarchy is a conspiracy theory, yes. Really? Do you think there's hmm. any use of the word patriarchy that isn't that? Like, do you I think, think any you people are... Like, do you... I think you can use the concept in a narrow and limited way to describe countries where all authority is presumptively male. 
And so you could talk about patriarchal legal systems in the context of Sharia and in the government of some but not all Islamic countries. It would be quite hard to say it about Indonesia, which is a liberal Muslim country, but very easy to say it about Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan. Well, you could also of, say it. A lot of people that talk about patriarchy, they're not even talking about legal systems. Let me just throw this out there, okay? So we have the sexually dimorphic species that we belong to, where men, the males are, let's say, approximately 35% stronger than the females. And uh, 50% stronger in the upper body. Yeah. And, and 100% and, and stronger when it comes to punching, punching power. All right. Sorry, well, I used to be a martial artist. I, I got a black yeah. belt and showed a can karate. I can tell you this. <laughs> you get hit by a bloke. You have <laughs> this sexually dimorphic species where the males overall are significantly stronger and uh, more violent than the females. So wouldn't that be an explanation? I mean, wouldn't you just say that like, well, we're by default in a patriarchy because the males are stronger. Where you're just sexually dimorphic, so oh, well, the males not, are going to have the, this. That's not the claim that the feminist theorists make, though. They make the smoke-filled rooms blokes amongst themselves using rape as a weapon in Brown Miller, for example, to keep all you know all men. This is a weapon by which all men keep all women down. That kind of thing. Um, but I so thought that was more. I, I thought that was more of like an emergent property, just of this of this dimorphic reality rather than a... If you conceive of it in evolutionary terms and want to call it patriarchy, then that's fine. But you are taking the word as it was defined by a group of feminists and redefining it. And I doubt evolutionary biologists and uh, evolutionary anthropologists would, would, would thank you because they have already worked out their systems of categorization to describe the legal systems and the roles of the sexes and who does what in when they are looking at forager society forager civilizations and you could but you could legitimately say if you're defining it in that anthropological and evolutionary sense you could say that humans have evolved in an environment going back to when we were pre-human going back to our primate ancestors uh, where authority was presumptively male and most of the time that presumptive male authority emerged because men are bigger and stronger than women and even where that isn't that the case where you get occasional biological exceptions i am one i'm six foot one and 90 kilos and can really hit very hard um i could all women are crippled effectively while they are pregnant and lactating so even if you've got the physical advantage you lose it as soon as you become a mother so you could make that that's a perfectly legitimate and fair as you say, emergent property of the, the the facts of biological evolution. But nobody, apart the only feminists I've seen grapple with this seriously, and her book only came out this year, is Louise Perry, who you should get on this show because she's very good. And she is the one where she's basically gone through a book and go, my presumptive male authority, and she actually studied anthropology at evolutionary anthropology at university. That's what she did her degree in. And she then went and worked after she graduated from university at a rape crisis centre and she found, because she'd also 
in Britain, you can choose subjects and bits from other disciplines. You don't have to do it all in one area. It's a little bit like a liberal arts qualification, what she what she did. I didn't have that choice when I did a law degree. I had to become a lawyer. And law is so big, you have to just spend three years doing nothing else but study law, 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 because there's so much of it. But in her case, she's done some of the feminist subjects. She knows a lot about it. And she found, she said, when I was working at the, she says in her book, uh, working at the Rape Crisis Centre, I found that the more accurate understanding that I got of male and female behaviour in this context did not come from my feminism. It came from my evolutionary anthropology. And she actually talks about this in interviews and, and in her book. And But she's the only one I've seen do that. Most of them, they engage in versions of blank slateism. You know, we are blank slates. And everything is caused as a result of socialization. Now, obviously, some things are caused by socialization. The classic example is um, my parents are British and they went to Australia. And the only reason we, the children, have got traces of a British accent is because all of us went back and forth from when we were young and small. If, however, you get immigrants to Australia, even if they're Chinese immigrants, and even if their kids speak fluent Chinese, when that Chinese-looking child opens their mouth, they will have an Australian accent. They will sound like Paul Hogan. And that's a classic example of socialisation where socialisation theory is obviously true. And one of the things, if you take the non-shared environment of socialisation away, very odd things start to happen. Americans started to complain because the BBC has very high quality children's programming. So a lot of American during the pandemic, American parents, their kids were watching nothing else but CBeebies and Peppa Pig and all the various British children's television shows. And so you had little American children speaking to their parents with the same accent as this, you know, and wanting mince pies at Christmas, which is a British custom and and because they're fruit mince pies, they're not an American custom at all. And that was pure. That's what socialization can do. So it can be very powerful. Humans are the blankest slates, but they are not blank slates. And it's very difficult to change that evolutionary programming that does go back millennia, more than millennia. I mean, humans have only been, we've only been human in the form that we are now for about 100,000, maybe 200,000 years. And we did share the earth with with people who aren't our ancestors but to which we are closely related because lots of us have neanderthal dna denisovian dna there are no neanderthals and no denisovians anymore it's just homo sapiens on this but we, sh- we have their dna i have to ask you have you read this book uh the secret of our success no i haven't have you heard of it i've heard of it but i haven't read it about cultural evolution i'm reading it right now i it's Pretty affecting. Highly recommended. We'd love to know what All you right. think. All right. I, I mean, because you've got to realize that behind me, that, that's the pile of books still to be reviewed up there, you see, because <laughs> <laughs> I write lots of book reviews and I'm not the, I, and I, I could read them quickly and do a superficial job, but I can't do a superficial review job with good books. I have to go through and take notes and check their footnotes and make sure that the footnotes say exactly what they say they say. So, yeah. of course, reading a book properly takes me a fortnight. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I'm thinking a lot about uh, the way patriarchy is discussed, the way 
people say smash the patriarchy and at this point when i see that i go like good luck with that like how are you gonna well, do that it, it means <laughs> it means unwinding if you're going to define patriarchy in the narrow limited sense that we were talking about earlier it means unwinding biology, biological evolution which is impossible we're not to use helen joyce's expression we're not meat lego we can't just do what we want or be what we want you know, and constraints are not oppression. The fact that it's women who who bear and nurse children, that's not oppression. That is nature. Now, you can try to argue to avoid the naturalistic fallacy. You can try to argue that just because something is natural doesn't mean it is good. And that is true. But by the same token, if you're going to make that argument when it comes to bi human biology, then you're going to have to have a much more sophisticated medicine than we currently do. And we have all seen pictures. Anyone with eyes has seen pictures of detransitioners when they show pictures of their bodies with when the surgery has been botched. It's just awful. Absolutely awful. I feel I like... Mean, I feel like what's happening with the modern trans movement is this, this oversight or flaw in traditional feminism has sort of come to the fore that it's metastasized. Social, socialization theory was very appealing, uh, but it has flaws and limits and the rise of modern trans activism shows that and what women are having to do now is really grapple with this. I've had to grapple with it myself, right? Like I've had to mm. think about female only spaces and why they exist, which I never had to think about before. Mm. And that uh, I actually want special treatment because I'm a woman, which is embarrassing, right? But I want, well, I want the, special the, uh protections because, because I'm weaker. Female. Yeah. And it's like, I don't like that. I never had to think about that until starting it's about five years ago. Women like yourself in a very awkward position. Yes. And the other aspect of it, because you're one of the reasons you're being forced to argue for special treatment is you're making uh, in liberal terms, because I'm coming out of a tradition of what, what in Britain gets described as liberal Toryism. So I've got quite similar politics to Boris Johnson, who is an example of liberal Toryism. And the what used to be one of the core pillars of liberal Toryism was this concept known as freedom of association. Now, freedom of association in Britain was expressed in terms of premises and venues could ex had a right to exclude. Uh, they had dress codes, they had race codes, and they had sex codes. So, for example, you had venues, typically golf clubs, most notoriously in Britain, but also other private members' venues, where women were simply not admitted. Now, this was a long time after suffrage, a long time after we had women MPs and so on and so forth. They were still male only and the women could only come as guests. You know, it caused all sorts of weirdness in the Conservative Party because the Carlton Club, which is the traditional club of Toryism in, in London, and then suddenly the Conservatives had a woman prime minister and basically you had all these blokes you know it was like the cartoon dog chasing its own tail it was it was very awkward for them but there were organized campaigns against this in a number of countries to say that you were no longer to have exclusion laws and it's happened everywhere which is why you can see people dressed 
shabbily getting into a venue that is su supposed to be a black tie or even a white tie event and they, it's very, it becomes very hard to throw them out now so it's even become applied to superficial things but traditionally there was a freedom of association argument that said we can exclude people we don't want and because it sometimes had a racial expression a racial animus or a se sexual animus behind it it meant that the civil rights movement in the United States and the feminist movement in Britain and Australia and, and Canada campaigned intensely to break down, to break freedom of association, so much so that there's an American legal scholar whose name escapes me, but he describes uh, the second Civil Rights Act, not the first one, but the second one, he describes it as the law that ate the Constitution because everything is now framed in terms of you must admit everyone, you must let everyone in, you must be inclusive, you must be diverse. And one of the traditional pillars of liberalism, freedom of association, has been completely destroyed. Now, I have made this point in British publications, and I've it's an argument I've been making since I was in high school in the 80s, you know, when I had friends who, who got involved in feminism and were trying to make golf clubs admit women. And I'm going, this is going to come back to bite you because at some point women are going to do something that men want to do as well. And they're going to need to make a freedom of association argument to keep the men out. I made this argument, nothing to do with trans. I was just in debating, this is known as a logical extension argument, uh, and they're going to want to keep the men out. And they'll have done like the scene in Man for All Seasons. They'll have cut down all the laws in England to get at the devil. And then when the devil turns on them, they've got no laws to defend them. And that is what has happened. Now, there are things that women do that a certain minority of men want to do and want to join in on. And women have lost the shield of freedom of association because they historically in Britain took it away from men in the United States and maybe it's just your history was just so replete with racism that there was no other way of dealing with this in the United States the group that, that did this more than feminists you have to acknowledge this in Britain it was feminists in the United States it was black people they took the shield of freedom of association away from white people not realizing that there would one day come a time where a group that had historically been disadvantaged, even oppressed. And I think in the US you would have to say oppressed with black people because of slavery. Um, there would come a time when they would need the shield of freedom of association themselves, but unfortunately they've thrown it away. And so we've got a real problem now. We've undermined very traditional liberal concepts and principles that existed for very good reasons. And now that we've just suddenly discovered how important they are because it's placed you, Nina, in this position where you feel like you're arguing for special privileges. You you can't just get up and say, no, this is my club. This is my venue. This is my space. No boys. Whereas if you'd have gone back to the 1960s, you'd have been able to make that argument and no one would have blinked an eye because it was freedom of association. I'm actually thinking of just things like you know, women's bathrooms and changing rooms, which yes, very you know, basic were things. never, they were never touted as private clubs, you know, <laughs> they were, and I just, I never really thought about them. They were just mm. there. 
And I never no, thought I never th- thought that they were idea fought is for. Ancient. Yeah. Yeah. This idea is ancient. Even I mean, my first degree before I did a law degree was in classics. And everybody knows with the Romans they had mixed naked bathing. And you think, oh my God, that must have been dreadful. But if you go to Pompeii, you see that yes, the big open bath area where everybody can see everybody else. And if there is a man who's handsy, everyone can see him. But the changing rooms, men, women. There's even a rescript, which is like an imperial edict uh, from the Emperor Hadrian, uh, directed at one province in the empire, where it has been brought to his attention that a construction building company, construction firm, has built a set of baths, not only with a mixed bathing and swimming area, but also with mixed changing rooms and loos. And he says, no, you won't have that. You will call them back in and they will, at their own expense, build separate changing rooms and loos for men and women, even the Romans who didn't have the nudity thing that we do. Um, That's in Helen Joyce's book in Trans. She actually quotes that, the rescript from Hadrian on that point. And one of the ways traditionally that, I mean, because the status of Roman women was relatively high, so they didn't have this whole chaperoning or problems with women outside the house or that kind of thing. But in other civilizations, the way that they kept women controlled was just you don't provide any public loose for them because then they're leashed by their bladder. And there was a campaign in the 18th century in both Paris and in London to make sure there were public loose for both men and women. And often the first places to build them were department stores because they wanted female customs, customers. So Selfridges, for example, put women's loose in, in I think some point in the, in, in the mid-19th century. And Early suffragists and suffragettes were completely honest about the fact that because at various boroughs around London had not built public loos for women, any time they had a protest or a march or anything to do with the vote, they they made a point of making sure they went past suffragettes in both directions because it meant all the women in the march could go in and have a pee. You know, one of the social problems that exists in India, for example, with girls not going to school is because they don't have loos for girls and girls get their periods. They start to get their periods sort of 13 or 14. They get them a little bit older because it's a developing country and they don't have anywhere to to dispose of used sanitary towels. They don't have anywhere to change in private, this kind of thing. So, so you get all, admittedly, in the lower caste, it's not amongst educated women who go to similar sorts of schools as we all do. Um, But it means that a large pool of the Indian female population stops going to school as soon as they menstruate. Now, this is very, very basic development aid stuff that I have known about since the 1980s. And I'm just completely astonished and boggled at people who somehow pretend that, that they don't know about it. I mean, I remember reading articles about the problem of loos in developing countries and with very conservative religious cultures, like you see in parts of India and Pakistan. I can remember reading articles about this in the New Internationalist magazine, as the magazine of Oxfam then was in Community Aid Abroad, in the 1980s. I could get them in the school library. This has been known for decades. So, Helen... Nina asked a question at the top of the hour about Mm. your views on hate speech and and you've been defining it and we've been going down different uh, alleyways and segues and whatnot. Can you wrap up and and tell us, finish telling us the origin of hate speech and bring us back to, to where we are right now? 
Well, what happened, of course, after the Soviets managed to smuggle in incitement to hate or variations on it into the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which was ratified in 1966, is that those ideas were then in the wild. And whilst the United States has been protected by the First Amendment and Australia has been protected not quite as well, but fairly well by the workplace relations legislation, its industrial laws, other countries that didn't have historic protections, didn't have either entrenched constitutions or didn't have a particular workplace culture, uh, finished up enacting versions of it in their own country. And you've all probably seen news reports of these ridiculous incidences where people have been cautioned by police in the UK for putting a meme on Facebook and have had non-crime hate incidents, which recorded and they're not a criminal offence but the problem is they go in the same place and they look very similar on if you, if you do a disclosure and barring check which you have to do for lots of jobs in the UK mainly to work with children you you do one of those and they appear on that and to the untrained eye if you're if you're a lawyer you're fine you know immediately the difference or a police officer you know the difference but ordinary members of the public the the manager of a childcare centre for example who's looking at potential employees is mm. not going to be able to tell the difference it's going they're going to really struggle so you that is where it leads uh, you've got situations where you've got laws against Holocaust denial often it started with laws against Holocaust denial particularly in countries like Germany you've probably all had the experience of seeing on Twitter. Uh, you've got a report from Twitter, even if they've done, Twitter has done nothing to you. By the way, what you've just said is allegedly in contravention of something, something, something legislation in the in the Gazette's book in Deutschland, yeah. under German law. You've probably I had a all bunch seen of that. those this week. Yes, yes. That, and that is purely because in Germany, they have developed and it's a slippery slope or a pyramid of hate or whatever you want to call it, except instead of going up to the pyramid, you're skiing down it. Yeah. And it's not exactly a difficult run. It's only a tiddly little blue run. It's not as though it's a red run or a black run or a diamond run or whatever. Um, you, you skied down and suddenly something that started with you can't deny the Holocaust has become if you don't agree that men can become women, then it's hate speech. And that was always, yeah. that has always been the American argument against it, and it's entirely correct. In Australia, the argument against it, against it has worked somewhat differently, even though it does have relatively weak hate speech laws. They've had less effect in Australia for a different reason. Australia, traditionally, in the 19th century, had a very, very powerful labour movement and one trade unions. And one of the ways that bosses, and you can call them the boss class here, the bosses, tried to get at trade unionists was if, for example, a, a industrial worker, a tradesman or a miner uh, was a organiser in what was then the nascent Labour Party, the Australian Labour Party, what they would try to do is say, we don't want a Labour agitator working in our workshop, in our factory, in our mine, and they would sack the person who was a leader in the local labour movement. So what happened was when we had labour governments, and to be fair, even conservative governments have agreed with this as, as well, because it's deeply part of the what is often called the Australian settlement, is you can't sack an employee. It's very hard to sack an employee for their views, because historically, and now it's part of 
Australia's Workplace Relations Act and its labour labour laws, uh, the protection for the worker written into the country's industrial relations legislation has very significant protections for the speech of workers. But that is a legacy of the trade union movement. So that's why it's less bad in Australia, although we do have hate speech laws in Australia and there is no rights protection in the Australian constitution. So for my mind, the gold standard protection for speech is a combination of the First Amendment, which other countries should try to copy from the United States, and the Workplace Relations Act, which other countries should try to copy from Australia. If you wanted to fight this monster off and really put it in its box, if you blend those two traditions and put them together in, in your legal system, you will you will kill this whole hate speech, getting people sacked for their views nonsense. You will kill it dead. Hmm. I was uh, listening to a, a Marxist make an argument for the need of uh, strong labor unions so that yeah. free speech can be protected from, from that. Yes, well, he, because... he may know, I don't know if that Marxist individual knows, but people who are aware of Australian labor history are the kind of people who will make that sort of argument. I'm a conservative and I have no problem with with making that argument because I unions don't just exist to protect wages. Unions are part of civil society. They're as important as Rotary or Lions. They just do a different thing. And conservatives are supposed to be about upholding and protecting civil society. And that doesn't just mean the ones that we like, whether it's churches or service clubs or, or sporting associations, which are traditionally the ones that conservatives like. It also includes things like labour unions, which are the civil society organisations and associations that traditionally are preferred by people on the left. But they all feed into civil society and they're all much, much healthier organisations than anything you see on social media. Uh, on that note, could I ask <laughs> for your, your viewpoint on what we should understand as the difference between free speech as it pertains to limitations on government action and free speech as it pertains to social norms? I'm not completely sold on the marketplace of ideas argument that a lot of people make because bad ideas can win. If you get someone with a silver tongue even in a society with strong free speech and marketplace of ideas, norms, the bad ideas can win. The wrong things that are wrong can win if you get a, sil- a silver-tongued person. My argument is that nobody, not just governments, gets to control speech. And that's because I just don't trust anybody with that much power. So that would be my response. I just don't. I just don't. I, whether it's HMGov, Uncle Sam, Twitter, YouTube, Tesla. I don't. I just don't trust these people with that much power. I, I, this is the thing. This is something that belongs to to all of us. You can't just hive it off to powerful organisations. Well, to follow up, maybe uh, one of the things that I've noticed is a tendency for many people to express the the concept of free speech only in terms of restricting government action Mm. and that they have seemed to have discarded the conception of free speech of being a a societal norm that that we or a value that we embrace apart from 
how our government is restricted in its action. And, and that, that's yes, that's a say. characteristic of US libertarians. It's one I don't agree with. And it's not part of British tradition, to be fair. And if you see people doing making and it, it's not the government argument and they've got a Union Jack flag on yeah. their Twitter bio, you know that they've got it off American libertarians because it is not part of our tradition. John Stuart Mill in On Liberty was very, very clear. He, he talked about first he talked about government controlling people's opinions speech but then he talked about the tyranny of social norms and the, and the tyranny of current thought and opinion he was ma he made it very very clear and i'm in a liberal democracy i'm afraid i don't see obviously in a developing country or a, an authoritarian state china can uh, the chinese government can do something much worse to you than a chinese employer although i wouldn't want to be sacked in china it has no welfare state it would be very nasty but, but in a in a liberal democracy the the effect on you whether you are silenced by the state or silenced by a powerful employer or a large organisation, NGO or something, is basically the same. Um, you, uh, it's, I, I don't see a substantive distinction between the silencing, whether it comes from the state or whether it comes from a large corporate actor. And uh, that's just being British, I'm afraid, or Australian, because it's that it's a di the distinction of where, where it only applies to the state is very much a, a feature of US libertarianism, which I am not. Um, I mean, I am really, really not an American libertarian. I, I am libertarian adjacent or I, I can speak libertarian because I've read all their books and I understand where they're coming from. But I'm not a libertarian because I, I mean, libertarians have got very particular views about the sources of law with which I completely disagree. And most people in Britain and Australia, lawyers, and this is a legal argument amongst lawyers, we have different views on the sources of law. We do, we, we're positivists, they're known as legal positivists, so we don't think that there are natural or inherent rights, whereas libertarians do. And so Ed West, a British journalist, uh, jokes that there are approximately 27 libertarians in the whole of the United Kingdom, which was why Liz Trust was so unpopular because she did buy into these sort of US libertarian ideas. And as the Tories just nosedived in the polls, because British people do not accept them. They, they, they think these ideas are rebarbative. Um, so, you, yes, that, but you are correct. That is a common argument amongst Americans, which I just don't accept. <laughs> do you think that there is hope for humanity or civilization, given that, we have a propensity to form mobs, a propensity to scapegoat, a propensity to police people in crazy ways, to gang up on people. All of this is like uh, such basic human nature. And I guess you're like, do you think law can save us? Do you think law is... At the moment, it's saving. At the moment, the legal system in Britain is saving saving um, women, the, 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 and it's what happens when all you're left with is the skeleton of the legal system, and all of the other norms have just social norms upon which we defended ourselves or, or people generally de defended their ideas have fallen away. And here, I have to be very critical of my own political tradition conservatives are supposed to conserve and we haven't done a very good job you know we're relying on the most conservative profession to make good laws 
and to bat away the nonsense. And the only reason law is so conservative is because the foundational ideas um, on the continent emerged over 2,000 years ago because they use Roman law. And in Britain, over a thousand years because we our common law has roots in Anglo-Saxon England. So you are literally relying on the two oldest, longest lived institutional ways of viewing the world and discovering the truth, because there are two great ways to discover the truth, the scientific method or the laws of evidence. Laws of evidence is much older, but it has just as distinguished a history. And it's it's very bad. This is a, a terrible blight and shame on conservatism that it is the only thing it has managed to conserve is the law. It hasn't conserved anything else. And as you can see with the history of hate speech laws, it's possible to pick up, you know, to, to have bad ideas go wild in, in the population and finish up being adapted in some way, shape or form into legal systems and pollute them in really quite destructive ways. And you find up, finish up needing older traditions in countries like your founders with their First Amendment and like Australia's labour movement to be able to defend themselves against nonsense. But see, so, it, wouldn't it be better if we could just squash those bad ideas before anybody could say them? If we could just squash, oh yeah, just, if we could just get rid of that and not let people repeat them. This is the great temptation. And this is why that cartoon you see, you know, um, when I am weak, I demand freedom of speech because those are your rules. But when I am strong, I deny you freedom of speech because those are my rules. That's why you see that cartoon on the internet and it's very, very perceptive. And throughout human history, the number of people who think that the rules should stay the same all the time and that there should always be freedom of speech regardless of who's in positions of power, we're always the ones that are outnumbered. If only we could get those hate speech <laughs> advocates to shut up. It would be so good, wouldn't it? Oh. <laughs> and that's the great and terrible temptation, you know, ma magical fingers. <laughs> I, I transitioned at a point in history where transsexuals were extremely culturally outnumbered. There was a, a lot of, um, you know, it's very shameful to be a transsexual. And so it was very important that people like me had access to freedom of speech. And, yes. And that we were able to express our ideas and make arguments for our inclusion and also in expression rights as well um so, yeah. not all self-expression rights are bad i mean i know i am aware I, I have trans friends who it was only the fact that they were accepted in drag clubs and able to perform that it meant that they were able to make a living you know so very very basic things like that my people want to control the speech of everyone else now it's not just and here i'm going to make a point and you can cut this out if you want, because it's kind of irrelevant to Nina's original request. But one of the things I learnt with my first novel, which was very controversial in Australia, and most of the people who went after me were part of the organised Jewish lobby. One thing you must do is draw a very clear distinction between lobbyists and the people who they claim to represent. Because mm. it's been my experience that lobbyists are bonkers. And the ones that aren't bonkers, and because I worked in Australia in, in, in Parliament for a parliamentarian who had a crucial vote in the Australian Upper House in the Senate, um, the lobbyists that weren't bonkers, and I will name one of them because they were nice people, 
the National Farmers Federation, they were not very effective. Everybody liked them, but because they refused to play hardball, they got much less of what they wanted. So we have created a situation where very, very mad people who claim to represent Jews or trans people or women or black people or big tech or agriculture or whichever, because I know the ag lobbies and the agricultural lobbies in, in America with the corn oil and stuff like that are completely mad. The, the Australian ones are very nice by comparison. We have created a situation where we reward completely dysfunctional, bonkers behaviour from lobbyists. But the thing is, they are not representative of the people on whose behalf they purport to speak. And I learnt that lesson very hard and early with my first novel, to not mistake the, the mad lobbyists for the great mass of people who are out there. I mean, Josh makes the point that some of the worst behaved trans allies, not trans people, but they're actually a certain type of upper middle class feminist. He calls them that they carry water. So it's not people like you, but it's people who think that they're doing the right thing by you. It's This is a real thing that exists and it's very, very dangerous. And it's right throughout developed countries and probably many developing countries too. It, it wounds me that there has been so much um, exertion of control over people, over people's speech yeah. on behalf of, uh, ostensibly on ha- behalf of trans people. But if, in my view, the whole trans lobby has become one of the greatest uh, threats to free speech. In, in the modern age, it has. It's it it's it is true. I mean, I had significant with my first book run-ins with the Jewish lobby, and then I later worked in Parliament, so I encountered all sorts of other lobbying outfits. And I work currently work. I'm senior writer for a, an American think tank, Liberty Fund, and so I've got some awareness of how they, particularly the agricultural lobbies, work in the United States. And I've had. Uh, some dealings with the world of think tanks and politics in the UK and have seen very bad lobbyist behaviour as well. And I have to say, based on fairly significant experience going back 25 years, um, the trans lobbyists, the trans lobby is the worst behaved of the lot. It is the worst. And they, But they all come from the same playbook. They try to get people sacked. They try to completely uh, trash a person's reputation. They try to isolate individuals from their social groups and from the organisations of which they are members. They try to get them expelled from from universities. Uh, all of them do this kind of thing. This has always been a thing. I mean, I had people try to, uh, in my case, because I'm a lawyer, I had people try to get me disbarred. They all do this. But it, there is just something extraordinarily over the top about the uh, trans activists and they seem to have a particular problem you know they will escalate to violence if that very really quite rapidly which is why nina's point about kelly j king Posey parker's events in america these people turning up i'm quite concerned i didn't know this was happening i'm quite concerned that there will be violence at one of those it wouldn't happen in britain because the country has just different norms um but I could imagine that happening in the United States where the social norms are different. I can honestly say that um, 
I had some dreadful run-ins with with organised Jewish lobby, but nobody ever came up and said, you're a bad person and tried to punch me in the face. That's just next level. It's absolutely next level. Yeah, and I can't, I can't recall any gay organisations. I can't recall uh, even the, the ones that really did have a bit of a bad re- reputation historically, like the police federations. Even they didn't do it. You know, you might get individual bad coppers, but you didn't get the police federation turning, turning up to an event and, or turning up to Parliament House and trying to muscle in on a staffer. It just didn't happen. And it still doesn't happen. There's a part of me that believes that the only thing that's going to really slow down or even reverse the trans lobby is to educate the general public about the the motives and the psychology behind uh, transgenderism is to expose it why it exists yeah the, it has to be done with care though because the lo- the worst of the lobbyists are almost exist outside of the actual population of trans people there is crossover obviously it's a venn diagram and there's overlap in the middle but this absolutely mad behaviour that has infected the American Civil Liberties Union, that it's gone right through all of your civil rights organisations, so much so that a separate one now has to do the work, Foundation for Individual Rights yeah. in Education, FIRE, yeah. they, they, they were originally set up purely to stop university academics from getting sacked. <laughs> and they're, they're having to go, ah, oh, right, the ACLU has dropped off the perch so we'll change our name and we'll have to do it whoops (laughs) that's really sad so yeah they are i'm talked out i've said everything (laughs) i need to say (laughs) okay (laughs) sorry about that but yeah it's just better to just there's the legal history now you know it's got soviet roots it's not nice (laughs) it's it's so popular though people most people that i know believe it believe it pretty strongly well it has a catchphrase doesn't it nina what hate speech be kind (laughs) be kind that's hate speech's catchphrase well they leave off the other two words uh it's be kind or else or else it's be kind of a of a chump yeah it's sort of it's a type of performative niceness but honestly this is what this is right outside my bailiwick it really is for people who have been fascinated by this conversation and who have been impressed by your encyclopedic knowledge on legal history ranging from (laughs) roman law to the corn laws to hate speech where can people go to learn more about your works and your writing um i've written three novels all of which you can buy from amazon the hand that signed the paper was the one that caused me to have a run-in with the Jewish lobby. Uh, it won the Miles Franklin Award in Australia, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker or the Pulitzer Prize. It won some other award, awards as well, but you won't have heard of those. You may have heard of the Miles Franklin Award because it's the big one. I then took a long time away from writing and practised as a lawyer um, in various jurisdictions, as I as I was saying. And I then had the opportunity because. Um, the type of law I went and did, I did corporate and commercial law for most of my career. Um, it's a little bit like John Dillinger. Someone asked John Dillinger, uh, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where they keep all the money. And uh, why did you become a corporate lawyer, Helen? Because that's where they make all the money. 
And so what I was able to do was I then had the time, could buy time for myself to write two more novels, Kingdom of the Wicked Book One and Kingdom of the Wicked Book Two. And they are speculative fiction. They're like what Margaret Atwood writes. And in those books, it's a two-book series. There won't be a third one. Lots of people ask for a third one. There isn't a third one coming. And they are what a speculative fiction of what would have happened if the Romans had had an industrial revolution, what sort of society would have had been created because they had different morality from us. Quite similar law, quite like French law, actually, uh, but, um, but very different morality. So those are the three novels. If you want the best of my writing and that isn't paywalled, so you don't have to tr- take out a subscription to The Spectator, which I've written for for many years, or The Australian, which I've actually written for since 1993, I'm senior writer at Law and Liberty, which is a magazine published by an American think tank called Liberty Fund. And I will, if you want to find my all my writing, just go to the Law and Liberty website and click on Staff and scroll down and you will find my name on the staff page. And you just click on that and you'll get every single article I've ever written for Law and Liberty, the majority of them with a mild legal focus or mild to serious legal focus because it's Law and Liberty and most of the people who write for it are lawyers. However, the people who put the magazine together have got very strong views about lawyers writing in a way that is accessible to ordinary members of the public. So I take great care to write very clearly for Law and Liberty so that so that anybody can read, read it. I've written a few articles about the transgender issue for them. I've written a lot of book reviews. I've written about Roman law. I've written about British politics. I've written about Brexit. Um, you can all just go through my author archive and just pick out what you like and ignore what you find you think might be boring. That's probably the easiest thing to do. All right, we should yes. we should end this. Know, otherwise, my cat will will hate me. Yes, happy Catterday. <laughs> We're doing this on a Catterday. Yes, Catterday. There's always cats <laughs> on my Twitter feed. <laughs> All right, thank you, Helen Dale and Turfs and Trannies. Thank you for listening, as always. That's <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody! Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.